Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst, and this is the second and final Friday, the 13th of 2020. Don't be afraid. Only 68 days until the inauguration. Only 68 days for Donald Trump to figure out another strategy, throw another strategy against the wall to hold his reign. Nothing to be afraid of at all. But today I don't want to speak about Donald Trump or even Joe Biden. I want to speak directly to Senator Bernie Sanders and appeal to the Senator in the clearest way I can. Senator Sanders, do not do it. Don't take all that we've built and trade it to be Secretary of Labor. You are bigger than that job or any job. You set a movement in motion and we are not done. If anything, this election shows how much work we have yet to do. For sure, we need a strong progressive at the Labor Department. You should use your leverage and power to pick her. We need strong progressives all across the Biden administration. And that is just the point. We may have won the fight for the soul of the country, although probably not even that, but we are clearly in a struggle right now for the soul of the Democratic Party. That is the fight that you rallied us to, Senator Sanders. That is the fight we still need you to lead. You are our champion and our strongest voice. From your seat in the Senate, you can mobilize. You can be political. You can raise money. You can speak out. And you can remain independent in more than just a party affiliation, actually independent. I heard what you said about being labor secretary when you were asked if you would take it. You said yes, if you could help working families. Well, that sounds like you are trying to get some guarantees. Promises from Biden that you'd get a voice in, in policy beyond the traditional work of the labor department. But you already have that voice. You can weigh in at any time on any issue, not just labor, Yemen, foreign policy, Medicare for all, Green New Deal. You don't think you'll be able to get Biden on the phone or rally folks around legislation? And if you can't, you have your campaign committee, your media channels, your ability to endorse candidates and support progressive groups. That comes with you being in the Senate. Taking a seat in the cabinet ties you down. Robert Reich, former Secretary of Labor, describes it as being caged in when he worked in the Clinton cabinet and Clinton was his friend since they were Rhodes Scholars. It is a mistake to channel the energy of our movement into that one post. There are groups steer steering us towards this and they're funneling all of our focus and energy into one ginormous bet, Senator Sanders as labor secretary. But no, that is not enough, frankly. We need to be thinking and acting bigger right now. We need to be exposing other candidates for corporate and lo lobbying ties or even just as a failure to read the nation's profound needs so that it's too embarrassing in this moment of crisis to have those folks leading us out of this crisis. They need to be exposed. We are already seeing how the centrist cannot be trusted, right? Instead of thanking us for sucking it up all these months to make sure Trump was defeated, they have started blaming us for their pathetic down ballot showing. Progressives did not cause the Democrats to lose. You know that the dysfunctional and corrupt Democratic Party beholden to consultants and lobbyists and big money caused Democrats to lose. That was what AOC was trying to call out the other day when she said we are dumping all this money into TV ads instead of building a digital future. But these poor, fragile moderates got all bent out of shape. She wasn't even speaking truth to power. She was speaking truth to a bunch of bumbling party insiders who wouldn't know a new and better campaign idea if they tripped over it on the back of a yard sign. Now, as I said the other day, I have great hope we can rise above the backbiting and build a new Democratic Party, a workers' Democratic Party that actually will go out and win elections. But the centrists have shown time and time again that they don't operate in good faith. It is always on their terms, capital's terms. Senator, if you go into this administration, you will never get all you want, no matter what they promise up front, maybe not even 50%. And you won't be there to help the rest of us if this fight goes south. And we have to fight for the place in the party. I feel that we've already won. So Bernie, use your considerable leverage to pick a good labor secretary and then keep your powder dry. And remember, you are our leverage as a movement. It's bigger than you, Bernie, not you, us. We need you as our leverage. The campaign for a fair society never ended. 
but it will damper if you lock yourself into a cabinet. Being the lion of the Senate, whoever's in control, Democrats or Republicans, it only helps the growing members of the squad. And it is how you pressure a creature of the Senate, Joe Biden. Think of Joe Biden as President Johnson, the creature of the Senate. The Senate is what is going to pressure Joe Biden to be a better president, to respond to this crisis. Some of us work the night shift. Some of us take the early bus. Senator Sanders, there is a big job of work that we need you to do. And to do it, we need you to stay in the Senate. We have been meeting to touch on this story for really the last month, but you know that we have this thing called this election um, and crises after crises, and it's just it was very difficult. But I am so grateful that we are finally speaking to our next guest. Uh, her name is Ozzy Mekatarian, and she is a researcher and professor at Pasadena City College in California. Uh, we're gonna be talking about Armenia. You may have heard that there was this deal uh, a couple of days ago over the war that has taken place um, in the last month between Azerbaijan and Armenia. And there's a lot of confusion. I made a tweet the other day and I have uh, Turkish propagandists now going after me on Twitter. It's very confusing. Uh, this is a very loaded topic and, and I'm just really happy that we have an opportunity to talk about it. Um, Ozzy, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you so much for having me. There's a lot to talk about. <laughs> so let's try to fit in the history of yes. Armenia in 20 minutes. <laughs> okay, well, just related like that. Like, like that. Okay, let's do this. Well, actually, related to this. So yes. let's not go back. So related to this area, um, Armenia, we all know that, you know, in the early 1900s, we had the Armenian genocide take place by Turkey, and Turkey's had a really hard time sort of accepting this part, and it's been really advocating a revisionist history. It's part of their sort of um, national myth. Okay, so mm -hmm. that's one side. So we're going to leave it right there on their side. Um, we have uh, the Soviet Union come uh, about. And when the Soviet Union comes about, it takes up all of this land, all of these republics. And within these republics, it allows like this Stalin sort of, Stalin did this very strategically, divide and conquer, would allow like ethnic enclaves within a republic so that the republic wouldn't unite over its own ethnicity as much as it would over its Soviet identity. So within the Republic of Azerbaijan, Soviet Azerbaijan, there was this enclave called Nagorno-Karabakh, um, Artakh, Armenians call it Artakh which is an ethnically Armenian um, area. Armenians have been there for thousands of years, proved by monasteries, historical proofs, archaeological sites, but it doesn't matter. Stalin sort of kept doing this as a divide and conquer idea. Um, and so this is an independent obelisk, like an enclave inside. So it is sort of it's independently running itself underneath the Azeri governments under the USSR. When the USSR is now falling apart and U Soviet law states that the countries, the republics, can um, vote and referendum for independence. And so too can the enclaves, independent autonomous regions under Soviet law. So just as... How did they um, let that happen? Well, this is Soviet law, right? They're, they're falling apart in the yeah. late 80s, right? Soviet Union is yeah. falling apart, but they have these procedures in place for their republics to become independent. And just like Ukraine and just like Georgia and just like Armenia itself, Armenia proper itself, um, the Nagorno-Karabakh region, which Armenians call Artakh, also voted in referendum to be independent. So those, so the same way that Azerbaijan gets independence, so too does this small region. Okay, so. But, but Soviet Union collapses and Azerbaijan doesn't want to accept this independence because it's in technically in their, what was once their USSR area. But the same way Ukraine gets independence, the same way anybody else got independence after the fall of the Soviet Union. So um, the Armenians in that region begin to sort of agitate for independence. Pre this, there are already serious um, discrimination, hostilities, and then pogroms and murder, both in Sungait and Baku, because there's like this minority population who wants in to Azerbaijan. be separate. 
yeah, inside, well, sort of like as an enclave, right? So the ones that are trying to protect them, and who are trying to protect themselves, leave a lot of these areas and go to um, Atah for protection. They fight this really bloody war. And so they have declared independence through referendum, through Soviet law. They have fought for independence and won that independence under ceasefire. And then they are not yet recognized um, internationally as independent, they're recognized internationally under Azadi land, but disputed territory. So it's considered okay. this disputed land or space. This is a basic um, history. Right. So there's a little bit more to this because there's there's pipelines that are going to be going through, right. there's so gold mines. So this is like other things. It's an oil rich state on. too, right? Like there's, yeah. there's, there's as a, a Baku, if the photos I've seen of Baku and friends of mine who've lived there, uh, I mean, it's like it's like a glass city, right? <laughs> built off of oil profits. Is well, that is that correct? Absolutely. There's a house of cards that built off of oil profits, but we're talking about now. So this enclave is about um, 150 to 180 thousand people, ethnic Armenians mainly living in this autonomous region, independent region. So they have all under international law, there are these two principles that we're looking at, right? We're looking at the principle of self-determination and then the principle of territorial sovereignty. But the way that we look at it and sort of Azerbaijan's territorial sovereignty argument doesn't hold because of Soviet law and article three of Soviet law is how Azerbaijan sort of got independence and then how this enclave got independence. So their, their argument under territorial integrity doesn't hold as it might have, or this area didn't do it legally, but they did it legally through referendum. So, um, so it's a small area, and then you have Armenia on the other side of it. There's a tiny little corridor that attaches Armenia to their ethnic people in this area. And then on the other side of that is Turkey. So Turkey, this is why, because I brought up Turkey first, because Turkey had... We are Armenia in the middle, if you look at the map, is sort of in the way of this pan-Turkic ideal, right? Because you have Turkey and then you have Azerbaijan, which is a Turkic people. Um, and then you have the Caspian Sea and then you have Turkmenistan. This tiny little, tiny little Armenia, we've kind of always been in the way of this Ottoman, neo-Ottoman dream. Right, right. So, you know, after the genocide, we lost like 80% of our lands. Um, millions of people died, not just Armenians, Greeks, Assyrians. Yeah. I mean, lots of people died after, like in this sort of ethnic cleansing. Yeah. Armenians were about 1.6 million people. Um, so we're kind of sandwiched in between those two places. Now, hostilities start at a very convenient time in this area. Azerbaijan um, attacks the autonomous region of Nagorno-Karabakh on September 27th. No one is paying attention. We're in COVID. The United States has a, well, I, you know, we'll talk about U.S. policy later, but Turkey-friendly president right. um, in office. Um, but also, it's just not paying attention. We're not paying attention. The world's not paying attention. And this is exactly how the genocide happened. It's exactly the genocide. But this sort of ethnic cleansing language started to get ratcheted up. And so those of us who are watching this sort of language get ratcheted up, this posturing of ethnic cleansing, we're getting really nervous about this. And so we're seeing Turkey talk about like um, fulfilling the dreams that his grandparents had or the Turkish grand forefathers had. Of, this like, is this, this is Erdogan who's saying this. Yeah, this is Erdogan saying these things. Okay. So having this sort of dream of like fulfilling their grandparents' dream so in this the Caucasus. Is so, this is so interesting you're saying this because um, Dorsey, um, he can flash this up on screen, but I tweeted something out about the deal. And we could talk about the deal in a second, mm -hmm. a couple of days ago about why was Turkey even, why did they even have a say in this deal? And now technically they were not signers, but we'll talk about that later, but mm. they did definitely have a say. And I got this, I mean, it's still going on on my Twitter, hundreds and hundreds of people yeah. on, on, on Twitter, um, supposedly Turkish um, or bots or whatever they are, Paid, but the grandparent thing, that message kept coming up. Yeah. They were saying like, this is the dream of our grandparents. And first off, you know, let me tell you about the dream of my grandparents, whose village you went into, what if I want to make, take this personally, and you <laughs> raped and pillaged my grandparents' village. So let's talk about my grandparents. Oh, I didn't know. I'm <laughs> Greek, sorry. Oh, you're Greek. But, yes, oh, yes, okay, okay, so you know so exactly. I should have started off with that. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> but I mean, it was just, 
mind boggling, like that message that you just said. See, yeah. I, I didn't understand that that had come from Erdogan directly. I didn't it, know it came, messaging. Okay. Yeah. And, and it started to ratchet up. So, you know, when the Hagia, the Sophia, the, the cathedral in Turkey was um, taken, the I Greek Sophia, cathedral, so, yeah. yeah, was taken and converted. All of us on this end, like Armenians, we thought, okay, here's the sign. This was this was a couple of months ago. Yeah. Um, for the folks who don't know, Hagia Sophia is in Istanbul, and it's um, it used to be an Orthodox uh, church. Uh, actually, it was many things. It's, it's gone through many iterations of, you know, if, if you go there, it's a beautifully historic place. But they converted it just recently, a few mm. months ago, um, to an active mosque, not just something that has, you know, there's still, and they covered up the icons, the very famous mm. Orthodox icons that were still kind of, you know, recognized. But what's odd about that to me is you've got the blue mosque, an active mosque, like two feet away. <laughs> Why did they need to convert Hagia Sophia into a mosque as well? Because it's I, this is an ideological battle in some ways, and so when that happened, we look Armenians, we looked at that and we're like, uh oh, it's coming, like we knew. And then you know, very along with this, Armenia itself, the country itself, just went through in 2008 this amazing sort of democratic revolution that was taking place. And for like the first time since it's been independent, we ended up having this sort of dark gray cloud of post-Soviet Eastern European style living sort of lifted from us. And there was this idea and hope of civil society and democracy and rule of law, and maybe this cleansing of these kleptocratic, corrupt leaders, Putin-esque, Putin-like leaders kind of coming out of the country. So there was hope also fermenting, but a bunch of very rich oligarchs didn't really like this. So this is also going on at the same time. So when these little pieces started falling in the pace and then into place, and then the language was coming out of Erdogan and Turkey, this sort of ultranationalist language, which, you know, their lira has been dropping. And that happens when the economy drops, when things are not looking good within the country, you look to sort of nationalist sentiments right. to unite people and to sort of not deal with that. And there's dissent. Can I just pause for one second? In Turkey right now, there's dissent. You have a rising oh. leftist class, even the Absolutely. mayor of Istanbul is a leftist, supposedly, and, mm -hmm. you know, is at war with, with Erdogan. You had an amazing, vibrant sort of liberal uh, movement taking place in Turkey, right? Erdogan like, tries to smash this. I, I don't think he's been able to smash it yet. I think with the economy falling, um, it's going to be hard to smash that out completely. However, if you create the enemy on the outside and refocus energies towards the enemy on the outside, and the same thing was happening in Azerbaijan. And I guess when that democratic revolution took place in Armenia, this is a revolution that took place without one single shot being fired. And at first we're like, wow, is this sort of Western revolution? Is this happening by Western propped person? But it began to, we pay, as you paid attention to it, it felt very organic. Like the people just needed to breathe, you know, civil society needed to live. And so it looked like it was being a very um, positive movement, but it was dangerous to the region because democracy is contagious, hope is contagious, civil liberties and civil society movements are contagious. And so having that be a risk, a contagion in the region, I think might have been a bit too much for those oligarchs, those oil rich dictators. Azerbaijan also, as tight as they are and as sort of revisionist history as they have, I think they have a the civil society movement inside that is trying to agitate for change. And they've been under this dictator and his family forever. Their vice president is the wife of the dictator. I mean, you know, the money, they have all this oil money, but it's not going to the people. You know, <laughs> the wife of them, sorry. It's like yeah, Melania it being like a vice president. I know it would be it's very it's almost like a horrible comedy but the people are the ones who end up paying the price for it so but what better way to sort of reignite this pride in your nation and nationalistic sentiment than to say we're going to go take back our land that has been taken from us and a lot of those people don't know their history like they don't know the history of the Soviet Union either they don't know it it's not 
because it's not taught because it's, it's not it's, only it's not taught yeah. it's it's like sup- completely taken as suppressed completely suppressed they can't get the information unless they're out but in any case so then a war starts and they um this aggression it wasn't even a war i don't know if you can call it a war it was an aggression there's like 150,000 people with a very small army and you have 10 million people even if you include armenia with it armenia has less than 3 million people you have 10 million people on one side with their strong army in azerbaijan you have 90 million people or something on the other side and Turkey with their very sophisticated army backing Azerbaijan and this tiny little place in the center. So for a minute, Artakh thought it can hold because it has this very um, nice strategic mountainous location. And, you know, mountainous people are very like hardy and strong. It's really hard to conquer mountainous people. And for a moment, they thought they can hold. And then it turned out that Turkey had sent in a bunch of mercenaries and um, jihadists that were being paid. And then then international, like Russia, um, Europe, uh, the United States, international organizations were confirming this. So now we have these mercenaries and jihadists also fighting from, they were from Libya, Syria, and then you have Israeli drones. So it was almost impossible. And right before this agreement that was signed on November 10th, um, Genocide Watch, uh, put out a warning that genocide in Nagorno-Karabakh or Artsakh as we call it is imminent. And so there was, it was, Armenia was up against the back of the wall with the guns directly at it. And the people in Artsakh had no real choice, I don't think. Um, but there's other things that are bigger than nationalism. And we all know dictators and oligarchs and these people who thrive off of getting us the people to dislike and to hate each other, they're yeah. filling their pockets. So it's not just nationalism. It's not just Turkey's hate. It's not just Turkey's hate for Armenians, although Turkey generally hates anything that has to do with Armenians, or Turkey's hate for Greeks. You know, Turkey has this sort of expansionist thing that's going on in the Mediterranean right now with Greece as well. Well, yeah, they're, 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 you know, for they're folks like, who are curious, they're trying they're, to frack and take over uh, yeah. literally like 12, mm-hmm. more than 12 islands. I mean, just, I, just yeah. and it's, it's, but they're, it's, it's like mind boggling. Allo- okay, but they're being allowed to. So why Why? are they being allowed to? Why, if you look at international law, Azerbaijan's logic doesn't hold for territorial integrity? Why? Why is no nation around the world coming to the, what the law kind of, you know, completely says, kind of is drawn out, that you can see it in the Montevideo, like you can see the law is drawn out, one, Two, everybody around the world is seeing Turkey with this sort of expansionist movements all over the place with its hands in multiple places. The day that the, um, this contract or this ceasefire gets signed, Turkey is bombing Kurds in Northern Europe. Just yesterday, we have Assyrian villages bombed by Turkey. Turkey is doing this sort of free-for-all bullying, you know, it's kind of this bully state in a lot of ways, and it's doing this in a free-for-all way, but why? Why is Turkey being allowed to act like this? Why is Azerbaijan being allowed to get away with this? What, what, and I always say, follow the money. Right, so that's that's what I, and I agree with you, follow the money, I mean, this is ultimately the principle. What was so fascinating about this was, it seemed like, and correct me if I'm wrong, from the surface, that you had this very strange alliance between Russia and the United States on this and, issue, yeah. and, and and they're clearly more powerful than Turkey, and yet Turkey, NATO member, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, and the EU is just like like the same thing in Greece. I mean, I Greeks are up in arms. Like, how can you say you're taking over essentially part of the Mediterranean, 15, 20 islands, mm-hmm. one of which I my family's from, yeah. and I go every summer. Like, yep. it, it's just like you could see Turkey sure. from the from my window, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. And yep. I mean, how is it that EU countries are just like, oh, but what's going on? We don't know what's going on. But it took Russia and US to kind of say, all right, fine, well, let's like let's let's do something about this. No, so, am I wrong? I'm, this is mind boggling. Okay, but it's not. It's not mind boggling. It's annoying to watch, but it holds true at all times. We are watching the world put the world's the state. So when I talk about this, I really mean governments. The people around the world are not buying this anymore, but the governments are still pushing this sort of old guard mentality. The people and the masses, they're slowly beginning to see and they're not buying it. 
but so when I say the world community, I mean the nation states of the world. The nation states of the world watched as Azerbaijan and Turkey together, both authoritarian governments, both with democracy ratings and a freedom of press rating and then freedom ratings next to, well, at least Azerbaijan next to North Korea, but both very low on those scales. Um, Azerbaijan very clearly committed war crimes, no questions asked, not based on Armenian observation, based on Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and journalists from international all around the world. There were cluster bombs being used. White phosphorus was used in our forests, burned the forests because in the last war, the, the Armenian soldiers won because they hid in the forest. The forest. It's their land. They, they know that land with their, they can see it. They can understand the land very well. And they use that to their advantage. So this time, Azerbaijan just white phosphorus burned the whole place. Okay. Um, beheading of POWs, mm -hmm. sending videos of those beheadings to their brothers of the, the of the captured of the soldiers, um, committing war crime after war crime, bombing civilians, hospitals, churches. Why do they then get rewarded? And and not to mention, you know, there are these um, like there are UNESCO sites. Is that correct? Or, yeah. or they're mm -hmm. that are completely being demolished or taken over, right? In this or deal. taken over, and then they'll like sort of destroy it or write a revisionist history or yeah. flood things with the stories that are not correct. It's you know the MO is very um, common, and we're watching it take place. We saw Aliyev uh, with the BBC reporter oh <laughs> her saying, God. "I'm sorry, our journalists were there and they saw." You're like, no, and she's like, "They were there." You're telling me no. Like, That's not what happened. What didn't we'll, we'll pull up of that and so, show that. Yeah, so you're seeing that take place live. The same thing that happened sort of at the time of the genocide, this sort of rewriting of all of these things. Because if you flood the media circuit with disinformation, people get tired. They don't want to know. But this is really important for people who are not Armenian and not Greek. This is right. really important because regionally, we're talking about an area that is, that is really important for US interests and European interests. So from Baku we have, from Azerbaijan, we have two pipelines. That's going through Baku, then Georgia, then through Turkey, and then to Europe. Skirting Russian sort of dominance of natural gas and oil pipelines. Okay, we have this. There is another option for these pipelines. It could have been Armenia and then Turkey. So if Armenia-Turkey relations could have worked out, that could have been good, but Turkey just doesn't want, just wants to wipe Armenia out for his, you know, like Ottoman ideals and expansionist notions, right? Or they could have gone through Iran and then still gotten to Europe. But Iran is constantly under threat of U.S. attack, and it still is regionally. I mean, I, I think that the long game here is Iran, the eyes on the ball of Iran. And I think ultimately that's the, that's the, the prize. I don't think Armenia or Azerbaijan are the prize. I think it's somewhere through there. Um, I think Cyprus should be paying attention now that Turkey's sort of emboldened yeah. a bit more. Um, and I don't, in Russia now, according to this agreement, will ha I, I don't think Azerbaijan won, by the way, with this agreement either, I have yeah. to be honest. Um, and and what is Russia's, Russia's goal out of this? So, so they had like three ceasefires, all of them violated by Azerbaijan, some within minutes. And one of them, this was the, one of them, before its violation, a minute before it violates the ceasefire, Azerbaijan puts out a tweet, Armenia violating the ceasefire again. And then a minute later, it bombs us. So it's like mistimed their propaganda a bit. But so um, this, so we have the European Union and the UN have the OSCE Minsk group, which is Russia, um, France, and the United States to sort of talk about status and peace in this area, mm -hmm. right? They're responsible for the last ceasefire that happened that has lasted for so many years. Um, and they are responsible for setting this, settling this, but no peace still held. And then sort of Father Russia, our colonial, Godfather, I guess, came in <laughs> and, and said, I've got this. I'm going to take care of this. So uh, at this time, Russia, Turkey, and Azerbaijan um, worked together on this. And I don't, it's so bizarre because Russia, Turkey have been fighting a, right. a proxy war right, in Syria. Right. Basically, basically, it's US-Russia proxy war happening in Syria. Right. Was That was what was really going on. There seems to be some sort of trade um, it looks like Turkey is going to get Artak Nurgorno-Gorno-Gorno-Gorno-Gorno-Gorno-Gorno-Gorno-Gorno-Gorno-Gorno-Gorno-Gorno-Gorno-Gorno-Gorno-Gorno-Gorno-Gorno-Gor
So it seems that this was some sort of trade has gone on. Now Russia so, will have peacekeepers on the ground. We'll have peacekeepers. So before yeah. we wrap up, um, I do. I mean, this is this is so fascinating. So I'm I'm thinking about where we where the next two months lies, and I think what's really fascinating about Joe Biden. I can only speak from a Greek perspective, right? And I, you know, everyone knows I was a Bernie Sanders supporter, so I'm very like passionate. Mm-hmm. But Joe Biden has a a very very strong relationship with the Greek community, and I mean when he decided not to run in 2015, the night before he announced, he spent the night at this very big Greek Orthodox event um, with kind of like the kingmakers in the community. And he spent like the whole night there just talking and schmoozing. And it's sort of like his closest, um, you know, support group, I guess you'd say. Yeah. And it's strange because he's not Greek. Um, and so I'm reading, you know, sort of the, the, the Orthodox, like people, the, the pundits, I guess you could say, yeah. talk about how it's... It, 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 this is going to be handled very differently come yeah. Biden administration. Do you buy that? I mean, I, I've seen okay. nothing other than just Greek propaganda saying that. <laughs> let, me, I, I, let me say that I'm hopeful, but this is deal for, for that region. I'm going to tell you what's happening to that region, and you tell me if you think Greeks get, Greece is going to benefit, okay, in any way. I'm, I'm not even saying Greeks. I mean, just no. that uh, uh, the uh, region. Uh, standing up to Turkey, essentially. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's what, what I mean. That's, what I mean. Uh, that's exactly. We're talking about the same thing. Greek will, Greece will benefit in any way in terms of protections from this bully state. That's what, yeah, this is what I mean. Um, with this deal, with this deal that just took place, um, seven of the provinces around the buffer zone that protected Nagorno-Karabakh, Artsakh, which we call Artsakh, has been given to Azerbaijan, okay? Within those seven, a contract to mine gold was sold to the Anglo-Asian Mining Company, which which the governor Sununu's family, New Hampshire governor Sununu's family- A a Republican, let's make that clear too has the second largest shares in. That family is going to make, they're already making money on that, but that that land was sold waiting for the ethnic cleansing of that area. Those, that company was waiting, Sununu's family was waiting for the ethnic cleansing of those people, the Armenian people historically, like the people who have historically been in that area to be ethnically removed so they can go and mine gold. Gold is going up. According to all projections, that company will be making at least $230 million very, very soon. Their stock prices went up November 11th, November 10th, this treaty gets signed because now not only do they have rights back to an area that was a protected area, but then now they got rights to two other areas to explore. This is a United States political family, a dynasty, a political dynasty family. Like this is what they have at stake. So um, what I guess I'm trying to say when you're saying, what do you think with Biden? I think it's always follow the money. I don't think one person in American government drives policy completely, whether that's Trump or Biden. I think there are bigger um, stakes at play. Mostly we don't see it. And we would not have known about this gold mine, this gold this benefit, this monetary benefit, the winning of finances in such an expansive way, if it had it not been for the Sununu family being involved, because only investor, you know, magazines right. and investors like um, print journalism or whatever, we would only see if you're an investor and you're curious about investing in gold. Right. Otherwise, you, we, none of us would have known. We only know. And Sununu, the governor, Sununu, has blocked his Instagram of comments because it's been flooded with questions about this. So he's like, no, I don't know what to tell you. I, I think, so I guess I don't, my my hope is that with the Biden presidency, at least the language and uh, maybe some of the actions will deter Turkey. It could be that, you know, Turkey saw the writing on the wall and decided to act rapidly while Trump's still in office to get away with as much as they can. But I'm not quite sure if I, I'm saying yeah. that out of hope, but I don't think that's right. Right. I think it's going to be interesting to watch. Um, I don't think the writing's completely on the wall for Artsakh or Nagorno-Karabakh. It's not done yet. Um, Today, people are en masse exiting. There's an exodus of Armenians from that area because they don't believe that the Azeri IDPs or internally displaced people that they would come back and not murder them because they have in the past. So they're scared. Um, So they're leaving. And so you're watching. 
to Armenia proper. Charming so proper. you're watching you're watching this mass exodus take place, which looks so much like past mass exoduses, and it's really really heartbreaking. But I do not think it's done. I don't think Azerbaijan and Turkey should be too excited about the outcome. Azzy, this is so interesting. Thank you for this like brilliant overview of of the history of the region Thank and the interests and and the deal. Um, incredibly complicated, and you made it so understandable. Uh, huh. That's, even for someone like me. <laughs> that's great. Just pay attention. The area is dynamic and it's going to affect all of us in the U.S. We've got to really pay attention. Absolutely. Ozzy, Mekatarian, we'd love to have you back on. Did I say it? Mekatarian? Mekatarian. Perfect. <laughs> thank you, Nomiki. Just a pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you to Gabrielle for connecting us, my best friend. <laughs> I just have nice. to say, Caprellian, she's, uh, she's Armenian also. So great, thank you to great. her for connecting us. Give her a little shout out on air. <laughs> great. Thank you so much, guys. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye. We'll be right back uh, with our panel for Fem Friday. It's a great panel. We're talking about Labor Secretary. Who is going to be Labor Secretary? Stay tuned. Welcome back. Uh, who better to talk about whether or not Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren should be Labor Secretary than Kim Kelly. Kim Kelly is back for Femme Friday. She writes about labor at Teen Vogue. It's kind of funny, actually. Like, you're writing labor for, I mean, technically, I guess, teenagers, but, but I'm reading it. Technically, but technically. Well, I, I don't know how many 16-year-olds are reading. Hopefully a lot, but I feel like most of the feedback is from people like our age, but either way, I'll take it. Get them while they're young, you know? <laughs> So Kim, um, all right, this is, I'm going to start with a quick question about labor with you, and then we're going to move into climate and bring Ava in. Um, hot take, what, what's your take on, I just did my little rundown, my spiel. Uh, what's your take on whether or not Bernie or Warren should be labor secretary? Warren, I, I don't know where that came from. I feel like she has other interests, but I think Bernie, so there's the, the, the quickest hot take. There's like three names being floated right now, right? Bernie is... Obviously, he's lobbying for it. There's also a coalition of labor leaders who are calling for Michigan Representative Andy Levin to take the job. And then there's also some other labor leaders who are pulling for Boston Mayor Marty Walsh. They all have pros and cons. One thing about Bernie that I think is positive and helpful is that we already know what he wants to do. Right. Like when he was running for president, he had a whole section on his website about what he wants to do for labor. So having that blueprint, I think, is really beneficial because it shows you know, that priorities that he has already said he has are the same priorities that people in the labor movement have been fighting tooth and nail for for so long. Things like just cause, mm -hmm. things like getting rid of Taft-Hartley, things like getting rid of right to work, sectoral bargaining, uh, dealing with worker misclassification, which is an even bigger deal now because of what just happened with Prop 22. All that being said, if I was in charge, I would tap Sarah Nelson, the president of the uh, AFA-CWA, or Stacey Gates-Davis, the vice president of the Chicago Teachers Union. But honestly, I feel like they're such important, charismatic leaders that we can't afford to stuff them away in right. an office. So long story short, yeah, go for it, Bernie. Go for it, Andy. Marty Walsh, not so much. Yeah, not Marty Walsh. Um, it's interesting, you know, you say this because I, I mean, I feel the same way about Sarah Nelson and the same thing. We need Labor has been weakened so much so that when there are powerful leaders, I mean, over the last 35 years in labor, it's just, you don't want to lose them. I mean, Sarah Nelson just understands the way power works in the way that, that she could teach a masterclass. She has taught a masterclass on it. <laughs> um, but the same thing with Bernie. I mean, Bernie has tremendous power in his movement and to be, like you said, stuffed into an office. Uh, he loves going out there and giving those speeches and rallies and he can continue to do that till the end of time, as long as he's in the Senate, not to mention the Republican, there's a Republican governor in Vermont right now who could appoint a Republican to the Senate. So it's just, I just think it's stupidity. I will say just for, just to that point about the Republican governor, he has come out and publicly promised that if Bernie were to get that gig, he would appoint a left-leaning independent who would caucus with Democrats. So it would actually be a safe bet until the special election. That's the problem with all these like, oh, we should get this representative, this Senator and like throwing them into these office jobs. Like, 
things, nothing is a given. We just saw this election. Like, you don't know how a race is going to go. Some of these special elections might not go the way you want them to. So maybe look within the movement itself when you start cherry picking people, you know? Exactly. I just think that if we're going to put our energy into something, put it into something that was, that is more of a safe bet. And you're also steering an entire movement in a direction that might be headed towards, I mean, there's like a 20% chance that this works. Even if he's in, it doesn't mean that he's going to have the power. All right. Uh, Sorry for that. Uh, We had a little, we had a wait for a second. Uh, Ava Mosinen is a, did I say that right, Ava? Most Correct. Correct. Yeah, she, she is a, an organizer with Sunrise Movement, of course, in the Bay Area. Uh, Sunrise is one of these groups that is advocating for Bernie to be Labor Secretary and I believe Warren as well. Um, so I wanted to have, I have a very strong perspective on this, but I like, I like debate and I love when we debate on the left because like that's what TV should look like, not whether or not climate's real, climate change is real <laughs> on CNN still. Um, Ava, so what, what's your take on all this? Thank you so much for having me on the show and for inviting Sunrise Movement to kind of share our thoughts on this. Um, So the idea is, um, or the short answer I would say is we're not specifically advocating for like one person and that's our gung-ho leader, but to say that, you know, he should really appoint, the Biden administration should appoint individuals who represent the American people, not proxies for large corporations, private profits. Um, A really radical idea, I know. Um, But, you know, Biden, the Biden-Harris administration was elected on this historic mandate for action on climate and COVID and systemic racism in the economy. And to really fulfill that promise to build back better, they need a team that represents the ambition of that vision. And that means putting progressives in the cabinet. You know, it's interesting in, in one of Biden's closing speeches, and he has these moments every once in a while where it's like, oh, where, who's this guy coming? This is, he's a, yes, he's a creature of neoliberal movement, but, um, you know, he was the poorest senator for, for until he was the vice president. I mean, just, just there's, there is this like element of working class Joe that kind of creeps in every once in a while, um, not necessarily reflected in his votes or his policies, but like in his, almost his personality. And there was this moment in one of his last speeches where he said, you know, in order to build back uh, better, we have to, it needs to be built with labor. The only way we build back better, I'm paraphrasing of course, is with the labor movement. And it gave me like, you have these seconds where you just go, oh, that's him creeping in. But then you look at the transition team and it's full of Uber and Lyft executives and it's full of Airbnb and gig working executives and defense you know, contract uh, consultants and, and, and security experts who overlap with tech. So Kim, I mean, I'm sure you've been looking at this carefully. What on that transition team alarms you the most? I mean, like you said, the fact that it is just absolutely riddled with these Silicon Valley vampires. You've got executives (laughs) from what? I even wrote it down. We got Alphabet, we got Amazon, Facebook, Dropbox, Dell, LinkedIn, Stripe, and Lyft and Uber. And those two are the ones that stick out to me because as we just saw with Proposition 22, they are not in any way, shape, or form like for the people, for the working class. They are actively against it. So the fact that the Biden administration appointed them to their transition team sends a really worrisome message. I mean, there's already a conflict there. Uh, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris's brother-in-law is like super high up at Uber and was leading the charge for Prop 22. So there's already so many contradictions and so many uncomfortable aspects to how things are shaping out. I am, I mean, I'm seldom very optimistic about anything the government does, but this, this sort of, you know, this grace period we have where we're trying to see like, oh, maybe they'll do something cool. They're already (laughs) starting off like on the back foot. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're, you're in the Bay Area, Ava. I mean, she's your Senator, uh, Senator Harris. This is Silicon Valley. Like this, this to me looks like a Kamala Harris cabinet. People have said, oh, it's Obama's third term. I see it as a Kamala Harris, like friends and family and donor plan. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, do you think it's, I mean, sometimes they hand out these, these like positions sort of as um, rewards for, for donations, but they don't necessarily have power. It's like being, you know, in a inaugural committee you know, appoint the, to, to plan an event or something. It's, they're not really powerful, but I don't know. I mean, what's your take? You're, you're there. It's true. It's true. I'm in Kamala's hometown. And, you know, that, that gives, that poises us as, as organizers on the ground to be in a really unique position to pressure her, pressure Biden. Um, and, you know, I remember last year at the DNC convention, um, it was the Sunrise Movement that, uh, 
helped kind of ensure that she was signing a no fossil fuel money pledge. Um, and so I, I see her making these choices um, that yield to the power of progressive movements and to activists and to organizers on the ground. And so I have, I have a little bit of faith um, in their ability to you know, understand what their base is um, asking for and for them to embrace the base is kind of like the most essential piece for them to be listening to right now, not to be sticking in the corporate um, as executives, the fossil fuel money folks, the folks that, um, to Kim's point, are really tied up in all of these um, corporate interests. Um, and I think particularly I was reflecting on how, you know, Kamala Harris's hometown had um, days of, of um, suffocating smoke and orange skies, like bleeding across the Bay Area. And, you know, for them to for her to grow up in this area and then not act on climate, I mean, it would be um, atrocious. And I know it's important to the administration. And so for us, it's it's really critical to see some climate um, champions and Green New Deal champions really uh, fill the cabinet and um, start to influence the, the mandate and bring to life the mandate that they have, um, the American people has delivered. Uh, the Green New Deal has caught on so much, and it's it's really um, it, it gives me so much optimism for our future. Seeing how quickly the Green New Deal was able to catch on, but you know, let's just go back a couple of years, even a couple of months. Uh, labor has some labor has been at odds with uh, any sort of infrastructure changes or if, uh, environmental, like for instance, fracking, um, ending fracking. There's always been this sort of obstacle where the left could never be on the same page because because of, of some um, components of labor. Kim, you covered labor. Where, where generally speaking, I guess, because there's so much labor out there, um, where is labor right now when it comes to the Green New Deal? It's, I mean, I think we're still kind of uh, stuck because like there are, like you said, labor is not a monolith. There are a lot of industries, a lot of perspectives, a lot of people, and a lot of kinds of jobs. The tension that you're referring to when it comes to the Green New Deal is that there were some sections of labor, particularly in like the building trades and the extractive industries, they were worried that, oh, this is going to destroy our industry. This is going to take away our jobs. This is going to leave our members penniless. And obviously the that's not necessarily the case. We don't know yet because we're not there. But there is a, a very valid argument to be made that embracing the Green New Deal and clean energy would actually generate more good union jobs that would not harm the planet as much and would actually still take care of people who are doing that kind of work or retrain them in ways that will actually help them to find a better future for themselves. But the labor is, it's a big tent. And trying to get any everyone to agree on anything is like getting everyone at Thanksgiving dinner to agree on one thing, right? Like it's it's never going to be a unanimous vote, a unanimous decision. But I think that there has been a lot more dialogue in the community that has been kind of veering at the very least towards a more progressive view because it's, it's obvious like something's got to give. Like even the coal miners who theoretically are clinging to their jobs, no one asked them, do you really think someone would rather go down in the pit and contract black lung and be completely uh, neglected by the government when they ask for help instead of working on a windmill or something? Like this is something that when it comes back to the labor secretary, one of the interesting tensions there, we have uh, Representative Andy Levin, who has already been a big proponent of clean energy and environmental projects, and then Marty Walsh, he comes from the building trains. That then that more conservative, like entrenched hetero uh, or homogenous-looking leadership, and it's kind of this. And then there's Bernie, who is Bernie. So oh, wait, wait. I have a question about the building trades. I mean, I'm I'm a New Yorker. Building trades are. Uh, extremely powerful in New York. And there was just this bill that was finally uh, passed by my council member, Costa Costantinidis, who'd been advocating it. I think he's one of the most probably environmentally progressive um, lawmakers in the country. And he, uh, for years, he'd been advocating for this retro uh, banning natural gas. I'm going to completely screw up how this is, this is being explained. But the biggest cause of emissions in the city of New York is through buildings, through natural gas leaks in buildings. And so, you know, this bill was essentially su supposed to ban new natural gas and like retrofit. And the building trades were always at odds with that bill. And somehow, I don't know how he did it, uh, magic, he got it passed finally, um, which is transformative because people think it's, you know, cars that are, are, are causing um, the majority of emissions in New York City, and it's not. So, so question about what is their holdup about the Green New Deal? Anybody chime in, feel free to. You can talk over each other, it doesn't matter. 
Um, if you, I just talked, if you wanted to <laughs> jump in. Well, I can't speak to the building trades particularly. I'm sure you have a lot more thoughts there. Um, but I think the one thing that I was thinking about when you were speaking previously, Kim, was around how um, it is big tent. Like there are so many different ideas um, and that's similar in, in theory with the, the Green New Deal. And I think when you, when you center the workers that are most marginalized, if you center the communities that have been um, often left out of these conversations around climate action at the federal level, um, when you start to center those communities, you, you think about and you start to understand ideas around like a just transition. And what does that mean for um, people who have been um, in, you know, have been focused on their jobs for so long and are starting to worry about the risks that they pose as it, as it relates to the climate. And um, I mean, the centerpiece of the Green New Deal is a just transition and that's for, um, for working class Americans to understand that there are ways that we can invest at the federal level into a, in, in a green transition into the energy sector that doesn't, that gives them dignified union jobs, millions of them. And um, that's, you know, something that it needs to happen at the federal level and then all other levels would follow suit. Um, and we believe there's like a real opportunity for the Biden administration to push forward those ideals. Right. The just transition is huge because you can't just show up in front of a group of workers and say, okay, the work you do is harming the environment, is harming people. You shouldn't be doing it. So you should quit and good luck out there. Like you need to offer people something. And, you know, there's, there's been so much hubbub around job training programs. Yeah. Some of them work, some of them don't. And a lot, when it comes to the building trades, I mean, I grew up, my dad works construction and my granddad and my uncles, like my boyfriend, like it's, it's very much something that I'm familiar with on a personal level. And one of the big and, and interesting factors of folks who work in those trades are that is a kind of job that you don't need all of these sort of, you don't need to go to college necessarily. You can have some sort of criminal record. As long as you can do the work, you can generally get a job in these fields. And that's something that's been very helpful for a lot of people. You can get a decent wage and a decent job and be part of a union. That's the, you know, a remnant of the American dream, right? And mm -hmm. when there is a sort of existential threat to that ability, to that way of life, people don't always react in the most positive way. But that's why, as you were saying, it's so important to show that this isn't just an either or, that's a, it's a yes and. Like labor is really doing ourselves a disservice to be doing anything but supporting this kind of big measure because you know there's only so much coal out there and there's only right. so much that the earth can take, but there's always gonna be people that need a way to put food on the table. Mm -hmm. right. And let's not forget, it's it's popular. I mean, these are policies that, um, while they may be construed in the media, they they get broad levels of support amongst American community, um, among the American population. Um, even like a Fox News analysis on election night, I was just reviewing, and it showed like overwhelming support for um, these quote unquote far left progressive policies. Anything from you know how many people are concerned about the climate, or what kind of investment the federal government needs to be making, um, and so we need to stop acting collectively like these policies are um, kind of super far left out of a whim, like off a whim ideas when in reality, this is, this is what the American people want. And so to think about what the Biden administration should be doing in the first 100 days, um, the kinds of people he should be surrounding himself with, it's those that are going to stand up and say, this is what they want, not the Uber and the, the Lyft executives um, in the room. And just one more note on the building trades. I, I don't want to paint anybody with a super broad brush because I actually uh, recently did a piece for Teen Vogue talking to leftist and progressive building trades union members about what it's like to be in that environment and to deal with that leadership and what they're doing to push things forward. So it's even the building trades. It, it can't just be used as a catch-all because it is diversifying. It is getting younger. It is getting more there are people that are trying to to push it in a more progressive direction. Like you can't write them off and you absolutely shouldn't. It's just a matter of, as you're saying, listening to people and meeting the workers where they are and offering them something worthwhile instead of just saying, oh, no, 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 you're terrible. Get out of here. No one's going to respond to that. So in terms of, um, okay, outside of the, 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 the Biden administration, is there local effort happening? I mean, is there anything like in state legislatures um, in case, you know, Biden does not do what we are pushing for him to do. I mean, so far, yes, he's made promises in the campaign, but it's not looking that way when you look at the transition team. There's some good people on the transition team, couple. But, I mean, what happens if he doesn't? Is there is there a course of action? You guys hearing anything? 
<laughs> Better get thinking, guys. <laughs> All well, right, was... there we go. <laughs> well, well, I mean, my... not saying it yet. <laughs> my, my my first thought is always general strike, but that has... always, <laughs> you know, which is much easier said than done. But yes. I do think, you know, if the administration fumbles it, which I mean, I'm not saying that they won't, but I'm not saying that they, would, you know, who's to say? We'll see. But I'm not very optimistic. So if they fumble it, we're going to be in a similar position that we are in now, where we need to organize around these structures and be an adversarial presence to these structures that are trying to grind us down. Like the labor movement, I at least personally think it is way too cozy with the mainstream democratic establishment. I think we need to remember our roots and, you know, get our teeth back and let them sh- and show them that, you know, there, there's more of us than there are of them. And we are prepared to fight for our future, whether or not you like whatever way we decide to go about it. Mm-hmm. And I'll just yeah. add that. I, I mean, I think um, to, to your point, we've been organizing under a Trump administration for the last four years, and we have propelled the Green New Deal to be the nas- a national conversation. I mean, climate has become the number one priority for so many folks and um, progressive ideals around healthcare or housing um, as human rights are, are taking grasp in, in cultural conversations um, across the US. So um, it's definitely easier when we have an administration who is embracing these ideas, um, but we are not holding our breath either. And um, up and down ballot races are equally important. And that's the mentality and the theory of change that we have embodied at Sunrise Movement. And um, even locally in the Bay Area have, have really, um, pushed hard for get out the vote efforts um, uh, to encourage people coming out for, you know, California props. Many didn't go our way, um, but state representatives and um, yeah, progressives in uh, city council or, you know, board of supervisors. And, and those are important because that is where we organize. Those are the communities. It's the neighbors. It's our friends and our family that um, are impacted by the local policies. And so making sure that we are kind of pulling our people power to gain political power at various levels of the government is, is critical. And to your point, in terms of labor specifically, outside of the uh, the electoral vibe, uh, something that is really important to me, because I've done it, is for people who are involved in unions, involved in labor, who are dissatisfied with the decisions leadership is making, is to run for your local council, is to get involved, do what you can to push your union left. And, you know, it's hard and there's a lot of meetings and it's not the most glamorous way to get involved. It's not a strike. It's not throwing a bomb or dynamiting a bridge like we used to back in the day. But, you know, there are people making these decisions. And if you think that you have a better idea than the people in charge, then maybe you should get in the room and be like, you have to listen to me now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they use process as a, as a tool to control whatever workers, uh, the left inside of the party. So the more we understand that process, I mean, there's just a million different union tricks and process tricks. I'm sure you're very aware of Kim <laughs> that can be used, but, um, okay, real quick before we wrap up, uh, give us a little other than, than, than the Biden administration, uh, who is like, where are we in count in terms of senators, congressional members, um, who support the green new deal, Unions that support the Green New Deal. Where are we right now? The state, the status of the GND. Well, um, I'll start. And whether I, I don't, I'm not sure if I have specific numbers on on Senate races um, and support, but we know that you know the Green New Deal is like an increasingly popular um, policy. And and what we saw on election night was really. Um, encouraging because you're seeing the the folks that ran on more progressive ideals were the ones that won. And so while, you know, Biden kind of ran on this, like as a unity candidate, more of a um, centrist compared to the others in the race, what you actually saw was that people were coming out to vote what they're invigorated by, what they're inspired by are these ideas of, um, you know, healthcare for like that makes sense and that covers people for a, a climate that is livable and, and so forth. So um, we think like that one of the top priorities is of course winning um, the Senate and, and following the races closely in Georgia. But um, to do that is like, you know, to follow the lead and support workers of, and organizers and kind of on the ground. And even if Republicans may con- maintain control of the Senate, there is still a lot of work that can be done at the federal level to kind of combat these multiple and intersecting crises we face. And, and what are you thinking? Yeah, on the, union, on the union side, I would say uh, the Green New Deal, it's 
it has such a reputation as being hated by unions, but it isn't. I mean, it has, I just looked up real quick the the current endorsements. I mean, we have the American Federation of Teachers, the SEIU, the Service uh, Employees International Union, National Nurses United, the Association of Flight Attendants, shout out Sarah Nelson, mm-hmm. and the, the main FLCO, like they, they've endorsed it, they're down. And those are heavy hitters. So I think it might just be a matter of time and a matter of pressure and a matter of organizing to get more unions on board and to get the AFL-CIO to really embrace this as a, as a major plank in the, the platform, the goal, mm-hmm. the mission. I think, I think we've made a good start. And I think that this is not, I think the, the train has left the station and it's not coming back. Like, it's just, it's moving. Perfect, perfect for Biden. That's way. how you speak Biden. <laughs> the train has left the station, guys. <laughs> oh, God. Amtrak Joe. Bless us. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you guys so much. Kim Kelly, Ava Mosanin uh, from Sunrise. Just always a pleasure to have you on, Kim. And we'd love to have you back as we hopefully uh, make some big progress when it comes to climate. Thank you to everybody. <laughs> All right. Special... <laughs> Special shout outs to Moore El Algo. Uh, thanks for covering this topic. Oh, I think that was with Armenia earlier. And CB Logic, thanks for the love. Kowalski from Nebraska just says he became a patron recently. Thanks for the content. You can be a patron too. Join us at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show for as low as five bucks a month. You know, I say it all the time. Harvey K. Hey, I have my little Harvey K section right here. I don't know if you've... Once Harvey K put a picture of Obama like giving a chat behind, he had a, a bookshelf behind him and he was like, oh my God, there's my Thomas Paine book. Well, I want him to do that to me. Screenshot and show his books right here. Uh, right, thank you to Midi Doctors and Jules for working the algorithms. I was in there. I, I saw how it all worked uh, watching it when I when we were doing the pre-tape um, earlier with the, the interview. Uh, and of course, thank you to Bob and Chokin for keeping the chat room troll free. We don't like those trolls. We will see you on Tuesday. Have a wonderful weekend. Uh, enjoy, you know, this moment because uh, we're about to go into some more insanity. And maybe by Tuesday, Donald Trump will realize he is not the future president. All right, take care, everybody. Bye.